Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. We're talking with Nick Carter about proof of reserves. We always think twice. Yo, we never need jerk. I'm done with FTX. Y'all, I'm sick of these jerks. Let's go. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of Firmwide Research at Galaxy Digital. We have an awesome show for you today. As I said, we're talking with Coinmetrics co-founder and co-founder of Castle Island Ventures, Nick Carter about proof of reserves and how it could help the cryptocurrency industry in the wake of the collapse of FTX. We're going to check in with Christine Kim from Galaxy Research on updates and upgrades in the Ethereum ecosystem. And as always, we'll talk with our friend Bimnet of BB from Galaxy Digital Trading about markets. But before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this podcast constitutes investment advice or recommendation, solicitation or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. We got that disclaimer out of the way, so let's get right into it. Let's go to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading. Bim, uh, not a lot of macro news happening today uh, in the markets or this week even. Um, Obviously, the main story is FTX and the attendant fallout, uh, both with affiliated contagion across you know lenders and 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 funds the the buy side um, very affected by exchange withdrawal halts um, but also in the markets themselves what are you seeing um we're seeing uh sort of a continued grind lower in in, in spot prices you know you you've definitely bounced from like the the panic low of, of the the FTX day uh, but price action in general has not been um, constructive liquidity has been poor. Um, vols and sort of you know protection um, costs are, are still fairly elevated. Um, so you know what that tells me is that you know this is a market that's fairly fragile. Um, the other thing of note that that's actually very important is that you know with all of the the credit that has now left the the system, um, like borrows are incredibly tough in, in crypto. And if you look at things like you know CME basis, it's it's implying like you know 40, 50, 60 percent below spot on a, on an annualized basis. And that shows you that there isn't um, you know that much spot BTC collateral or ETH collateral um, that's available to folks. Um, in addition, um, you know I think uh, a lot of alt liquidity um, originated in FTX with, with their perp product. Um, and so now the the only other places you can really trade perps are, are Binance and and DYDX um, and a, a little bit on, on OKX. But if you don't have access um, to those platforms, it's 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 very hard to um, you know sell perps. Um, and so there's a lot of um, liquidity and technical things in, in the market that highlight that it is um, a little bit broken. Um, and so, you know, my thought process is really around, um, and, and with any investment or with any sort of short-term tactical um, trade, is who's the marginal buyer and uh, who's the marginal seller. Um, and right now, I, I, I think it's, it's very tough to see who, you know, the marginal buyer is and a lot of alt tokens. Um, I kind of see, you know, some long-term hodler types, you know, buying Bitcoin because, you know, it's it's moved down a lot, um, and you know, in relation to to other sort of you know assets around the the world, the macro stuff, you know, stocks are you know close to the local highs. Dollars sold off a lot. Yields have moved a lot lower. So in that context, you know, Bitcoin seems like you know one of the best. Uh, risk assets to, to own and, and just just in that context. So I can definitely see, you know, people that are into holding Bitcoin in the long run being like, this is a great uh, value opportunity. Um, at the same time, you know, I definitely think that uh, a lot of, of forced selling has, has gone through in the market in terms of, you know, loans that um, didn't get topped up, you know, folks liquidating collateral, uh, folks getting to uh, levels of, of, of spot or spot holdings that they're comfortable with given the, the higher vol profile and, and the increased downside risks. Um, so there's a lot, a lot I, I do believe a lot of the, the forced selling has, has gone through. Um, and that leaves you with, you know, in Bitcoin at least, it's just, you know, minor flows. Um, you know, I'm sure later on in this episode you guys will dive deeper, but um, miners have it incredibly rough right now from a hash rate, spot price, and energy cost 
perspective. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely marginal sell pressure from, from uh, you know, Bitcoin miners. And that that pressure, uh, you know, like it's call it twenty million dollars a day of you know new Bitcoin issuance that miners are receiving. That's enough to move price here. I mean, is it that illiquid? Are the markets that thin these days? Um, the the what we observe, you know, in terms of liquidity at any given point in time is is definitely worse than what we were two weeks ago. Twenty million dollars a day is normally not enough to 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 move the market. But it's just the compounded effects over time, right? right? Twenty million a day, after five days, it's a hundred million bucks. Ten days, you're talking about two hundred. And I don't know about you, but you know, I've been speaking to a lot of folks in crypto this week, and there are very few buyers and and very few people of that, that size. Uh, uh, yeah, that of institutional length that are, are trying to get aggressive here. Um, at the same time. Right. Like you do. There are sort of base effects at play here. Right. Like it's an asset that's moved down, what, 55 percent on the year or something like that. Sixty percent, depending on, on what, what you're looking at. Um, and so, you know, a thousand point move higher here is, is pretty chunky from a percentage standpoint. Right. And also, you know, you have. You know, there is a short base in this stuff. So, you know, you are prone to, to squeezes. Um, and so. You know, tactically, I could definitely see a lot of like, you know, short covering rallies, whatever it may be. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I think there's there's probably still more fallout from FTX and, and Genesis and Gemini Earn um, that's going to lead to you know some marginal selling. And then you, on top of that, you have the marginal selling from from the miners. Um, and so, you know, I think my path of least resistance is is likely lower. Um, I, I also just don't see too many upside catalysts outside of, of. I mean, I, I it's, it's really it's really tough for me to You're at a loss for words. Uh, at a, yeah, I, I've been at a loss for words before. Yeah, you but, have. <laughs> I remember earlier this summer. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a really challenging environment to to sort of figure out you know what the path forward here is. I, I think right now you know my favorite position is not having a position waiting for what the fallout looks like you know i don't think prices are likely to explode higher anytime soon so you know while i am constructive on the space and you know and bitcoin is an asset and generally speaking like when collapses like this happen they're normally like buy and forget about it for for a little bit and you know nine times out of ten it's, it's generally a good trade so i'm inclined to to think that way um however um, the magnitude of, of FTX and, and the contagion is, is still unknown. So, um, you know, until you get more information, I think it's really tough to take a stand one direction or the other. Totally get it. Yeah, we don't have that much information yet. I did see, I think, the bankruptcy attorneys uh, said they're hoping to publish a list on yep. Friday, uh, the day this podcast airs, <clears throat> November 18th. Um, that will uh, apparently detail the top 50 unsecured creditors. So. Hopefully that type of information will will be very uh, uh, the market will be very happy to have that. I guess lastly, like you know, when you look at a sort of alt space, particularly that was connected to FTX, mm -hmm. you know, the Solanas, all the tokens that are maps. On I still Solana. don't know what the thing does. Oxy, <laughs> Oxy and Maps, FIDA. Yeah, um, but also just the Solana ecosystem. Yes, I mean, you know, Solana's traded down pretty significantly over this. I saw DeFi TVL and Solana's down by like half. I mean, um, well, what, what the, the, I mean, the thing is, one, like, you I think mean, about the TVL numbers, they were wrong to begin with. I mean, there was, it was two guys accounting for, like, know, over half story. of Seoul uh, TVL back in the day. And I just think it goes to, you know, I'm sorry to get philosophical, but the culture of these VCs that, you know, wanted to, you know, get as much value into the, you know, the Solana ecosystem as possible. I mean, like, if you take a, a thing like Cosmos, that's genuine, like, they didn't do the ICOs, they aren't, like, huge venture bags, right. like, the, the growth and the hype was organic, and this stuff is just like, hey... We're going to buy this. You market here. I market here. It has value because we both think it has value. And we found some lender to that will lend to us dollar for dollar versus this stuff or even unsecured. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of the soul ecosystem was built on building blocks that aren't real building blocks. They're not, you know, fundamentally like good like you know you it's like you're building a, a house from straw instead of like bricks and like you know solid material you're not going to survive the winter with a straw 
right? Like, you're not like, going to survive crypto winter with a straw yeah, house. Yeah, someone comes to huff and puff. Exactly. Uh, they're going to blow that house down. I do think um, Solana, mm-hmm. though, uh, we're going to have Saul Kadir from our team speak yep. next week about Solana. He's very bullish on Solana still, and he'll give us his reasons why. Um, I do think that it's not. Um, I I'd agree. love to be there for that. I honestly would love a debate. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, I, I look. I think there's. Um, I we'll we'll wait and see. We'll table that discussion for now. Table. It but might mar- get heated. Just yeah, saying. The markets have uh, have have really t- taken a hit. The sort of Sam Bankman freed linked assets, including Solana and many in its ecosystem, uh, over the last week or two. Um, it's crazy times, man. Um, you know, yeah. you're, Bimnet's wearing uh, uh, this hat says, let's get that bread. Um, it's my hat. And uh, my friend Rhea Butoria at Castle Island Ventures gave me that hat. Thank you, Rhea. Shout out, um, Rhea. Hope you're doing well. Um, all right, Bim, uh, Bimnet Abibi, Galaxy Digital Trading. As always, my friend, thank you. Thank you for the hat that I'm keeping. <laughs> let's go now to our friend Nick Carter, uh, founder, co-founder of CoinMetrics, uh, co-founder and GP at Castle Island Ventures. Um the prince of proof of reserves, my friend. Welcome. Good to have you here. <laughs> I am thrilled to be here with you again, Alex. Beautiful studio you have. Love it. Yes. You guys have upgraded. We have, um, and really appreciate that. You know, obviously, Nick, the the FTX situation has been incredibly dramatic in the market and is having wide-ranging effects, right? Even just this morning, this is Wednesday that we're recording this, uh, Genesis, uh, their lending business has essentially closed its doors. Um let alone the myriad buy side funds that have assets stuck in on um, FTX. As we said last week, we have assets stuck on the exchange as well. Um, you know, what's your just overall take on the current situation as it relates to, and also just the near medium long-term impact on, on the cryptocurrency industry? It's devastating. I mean, uh, I said this uh, last week, I think it's the worst single event to hit us in crypto. I mean, in the modern era of crypto, um, just like the level of trust that had been accumulated, their stature, the fact that they were an institutional exchange, they're a custodian, the fallout is just enormous. And the regulatory machinations, the wheels are turning now. I mean, there's reprisals coming in Washington if, if these headlines are to be believed. So I'm pretty scared about... A, the continued fallout in among the lenders, certainly. There's others. Um, other exchanges, you know, no one tr- trusts has been eviscerated. No, right. no one's going to trust. I mean, for better, for worse. But um, I expect, you know, even Sam said it, there's secret insolvencies out there. Um, so I think other exchanges, uh, liquidity will be tested. We'll see if they're all fully reserved. Um, devastating for the crypto fund landscape, for crypto VCs. I mean, a huge shattering of confidence, um, and it'll continue this little contagion. It's a continuation of the credit crisis we saw in the summer that was just put on pause, and now this is the the last shoe to drop. Yeah, it looks like they um, had big losses, Alameda, most likely, along with others that we have learned about last spring, um, and I guess plugged the hole with uh, a hidden, internally labeled, uh, mislabeled fiat account. That's what he said. And what I'm referencing for the audience is that the Financial Times published um, a balance sheet that FTX had apparently gone out to potential investors with late last week, um, which seemed to add up over on one side of the balance sheet. But then there was a line that said minus eight billion (laughs) hidden internally mislabeled internal (laughs) poorly labeled fiat account. Fiat. (laughs) <laughs> minus eight billion, just a small oversight. Yeah, just casually, you know, this balance sheet, but you know, over here, there's minus eight billion. I, I don't know, um, but apparently, it looks like they were plugging whatever whole Alameda had um, with these FTX funds. That's that's the prevailing wisdom at this point. Although I'll, I'll caveat that we're we're not exactly certain what happened. And it is, uh, it's reminiscent of the Tether Bitfinex situation, don't you think? Yeah, they, I mean, when they had to dip into the they, exchange, they and, took their loss from I think this crypto capital or something. Crypto capital, one hundred fifty million Latin American company they used to store some of the tethers. God only this knows was years what ago. they were doing, and then they just dipped into the cookie jar yep. in the tether reserves. They socialized the losses among the Bitfinex account holders and issued them uh, what are they called RHRs? I think at the time uh, there's some. Uh, well, I guess that was around. That was the hack, right? Oh, so that was that from the, was hack. the hack. So then this was the second time they had to socialize losses, and they issued like a credit token for the difference, 
and they eventually paid it back. Bitfinex yeah, that's a, it is actually remarkable. Bitfinex is the case study in how to recover from a loss like this. In FTX's case, I think it's unrecoverable. Right. Uh, the hole is too big, um, and the trust is completely lost. I think they did have an opportunity. If Sam had come clean right off the bat, and he was like, we're going to do the Bitfinex thing, we're going to give you a recovery right token or whatever, the, the next time Bitfinex had their issue, they they created the Leo token. Right. Right. Uh, um, so, like, there is precedent for ways out of these kinds of crises. This case, not possible, I right. think. Right, and just, or fold Alameda, you know, and yeah. keep FTX. Yeah, they, they could have sacrificed Alameda. I mean, I guess that was a big part of the FTX value prop. If you look at the early decks, I was looking yeah. at early FTX pitch decks that I had from <laughs> back in the day. They were it, Alameda was front and center in the FTX pitch deck. So obviously a sign that something was amiss, but that was the value prop was right. we have we will seed it with liquidity. It'll be liquid from day one. Because we have all this money we're gonna put there, we're gonna make markets there, we're gonna I think it was a true it was true. Like it yeah. was very liquid. Right. But of course having a proprietary <laughs> affiliated prop firm trading on your own exchange is the least kosher thing. And yeah, it's it, essentially, you know, totally not allowed in traditional it, markets. Yeah, and so that was kind of always our issue with FTX was just the closeness of the Alameda relationship. Of course, they tried to sort of disguise that or imply that there is a Chinese wall, which there wasn't at all. So I know a lot of people think it was kind of unforeseeable. I'm not saying we foresaw it, but we certainly always thought there was something iffy there with that relationship as a venture investor which you are i mean i have to ask too one of the most incredible things meaning like shocking uh to have seen 32 billion dollar last valuation publicly known no board yeah no board i've demanded i did venture we demand a board seat on a seed stage deal sure <laughs> as do well we if we lead a series That's what a, i mean if we lead it yeah, yeah. um yeah I, I and we'd like there to be a board i mean it, we'll start asking at that early of a stage Corporate governance in startups has been so amiss for the last 10 years. I mean, Zuckerberg and Facebook, like, there's all these structures now where there's a single founder who is this sort of icon and is able to command total authority. And this is the worst of it. And I, I think now the pendulum is going to swing back towards real oversight, real corporate governance. Yeah. But remember, in crypto, there's a real hesitancy to take board seats. Andreessen often doesn't do it for a lot of uh, token-related deals. Uh, crypto funds often refuse to take board seats for liability reasons, right? Because you're on the hook as a board director. <laughs> I you, hear you. You, you, um, you are liable. Let's talk about the pendulum swinging back. Um, let's talk about proof of reserves, which has been in the conversation a lot the last couple of weeks. This is not a new concept. Um, and, and, and Nick, you tell us. So you've been following this for a long time. You've got the Proof of Reserves leaderboard, nickcarter.info. Yeah. Check that out. My um, website traffic has exploded. Has it really? I mean, I've said it to everyone. That. Yeah. Everyone's wondering. And Nick's been um, one of the only voices, but certainly probably the loudest in calling for and documenting the implementation of this transparency measure for exchanges. Also can be done by custodians. Really anyone that possesses uh, digital assets on behalf of third parties or other people. Um, so... First of all, what is the concept of proof of reserves? Tell us. Yeah, we have a nomenclature issue, to be honest with you. Um, and we've actually been sweating over the nomenclature for years. Uh, th there were advocates of calling it proof of solvency, which is maybe a more accurate term um, because it does imply that you are balancing both sides of the balance sheet. Right. Um, I actually preferred proof of reserves as a term because you can't ever really prove solvency with a cryptographic procedure. Right. Because you need a full accounting of liabilities, like all sorts of exogenous liabilities, right. right? Corporate debt, who knows what. Exactly. So that can't be cryptographically demonstrated. Um, so I know a lot of people say, oh, proof of reserves, that's just a proof of asset. That doesn't include liability side. Typically, proof of reserve, as discussed, and it's a term of art. It's existed for a long time, as right. you say. The first proof of reserves were being done in like 2014. Wow. Um, after Gox, it does refer to a proving your ownership of some crypto assets. That part is typically quite trivial, right? Um, and then B adding up all the depositor liabilities 
on your exchange or custody, you know. So essentially all the balances that you claim you're showing to your clients, theoretically all the deposits that haven't been withdrawn, but yeah, um, so looking you, at your internal account database and making sure that every balance that's currently being displayed to a customer, you have the cryptographic proof that the actual assets are also there. Yeah, and the hard part of a proof reserve is the liability side, of course. There's all these Merkle tree elements for privacy's sake. But yeah, basically, it's relatively simple uh, conceptually. You have the assets on the one side, that's easy. And then you just add up all of the outstanding liabilities. And crucially, you allow your users to verify that right. they're included in the liability side. Right. If enough users do it, you don't even strictly need an audit firm. It helps. But if enough users do it, they're the auditors. Right. They'll find that, wait a sec, like they'll be in some chat, you know, or on a Reddit thread or on Twitter being like, wait a sec, I saw a thousand other people on the exchange share a screenshot that they verified that their assets were inside the Merkle uh, tree yeah. and provably there, but mine aren't. So it's like right? herd Alarm immunity. Yeah, yeah, it's like herd immunity. If you exclude liabilities, that's how you would cheat a proof of reserve, right? You would exclude some liabilities. Um, and if enough users do it, they actually perform the verification, then you can have very good confidence yeah. that the liability set is complete, it, especially if you include an auditor right. in the procedure. The auditor looks at your internal database and they ensure that the liability attestation is complete. And so I would say it gives you pretty strong assurances. Yeah. Um, I, I, and, you know, luckily, well, now, I mean, it's not the best circumstances, but it is the most traction I've ever seen for POR by far. Yeah, I mean, and you have, um, it. I like your point about the herd immunity on the users. What, what we're saying, too, is that you, you have the, the exchange constructs a, constructs a giant proof, right? A, a Merkle, Merkleized proof. And there's a button on your account balance uh, that says, you know, verify. Yeah. And you're actually cryptographically verifying that your assets are part of that. They're in a branch somewhere of the Merkle tree. Correct. Um, and so you could do it on demand, theoretically, the proof of assets part. You could do it in real time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a little more cumbersome, of course. Maybe uh, they do it on a daily basis or something, you know, but there's there's I, ways to do it. Yeah. I could envision a world where we get to real time proof yeah. of reserves, which would be awesome. And so um, this would have, would this have helped with FTX? I mean, if what we think happened, happened, because these weren't, as far as we know, the, the assumption isn't these was a paper liability that FTX issued to Alameda. It was real assets sent out of the exchange, we think, to Alameda. Even a proof of assets would have revealed right. that something was awry. In fact, the on-chain analysts of the world know this. FTX was never, it was always very difficult to triangulate their cold storage. Turns out they didn't have any, <laughs> but um, mo most other exchanges, it's actually not that difficult to determine, well, here's, here's Binance's cold storage. Right, because you can it. see the hot wallet. You can see that they keep it around this balance, and periodically, they, if it gets high, you see where they sweep it to. Yeah. Or if it gets low, you see where they pull it out from. M most exchanges have a standard conventional structure for that, and it's easy enough to forensically determine their cold storage. FTX, though, is never doable. If they had done a proof of assets or... If it was um, normalized within the industry, then it would have been evident much earlier that something was amiss. Right. We would have seen the funds go to Alameda, right? Uh, assuming that's what happened. So, yes, uh, I mean, and, and a fuller proof of reserve. Of course, FTX in their impaired state, they would have never been able to pass a proof of reserve. So, the way it works is like via negativa, right? So, the credible firms do the proofs of reserve. And so, hopefully, that's where we get to now. And then the firms that are insolvent or fractionally reserved, they can't pass a POR. They don't even attempt it. And so then we know something is wrong because everybody else is doing the proof of reserve. Right. And then there's a handful that can't. So Gox was missing coins for years. Quadriga was missing coins for a long time. FTX, we don't know exactly what happened. There's clearly some missing coins. <laughs> and so... If proof of reserve had been more normalized throughout the industry, those exchanges would have never been able to do a POR. Right. And so that would have been our sign. That alert. Something is wrong. Yeah, that herd immunity is uh, something we need to get to, I think. And that's so that's why it's so critical for even the credible exchanges to do it. I mean, in some ways, this is a is a is a uh, major use case for public blockchains, actually. The fact that digital assets, crypto assets, can be cryptographically proven the control and ownership of them 
Um, you could see that it's not just that this would have helped prevent something like an FTX and does add significant safety uh, for both consumers and institutional clients using these types of custodial services. But it's also that this is a story that the traditional financial world can't tell. This right. is actually a uniquely crypto feature. It's an incredible strength of the fact that we're using digital bear assets. Crypto assets are provable at a distance, right? right? It's trivial for me to prove to a third party that I have a crypto asset. Can't do that with gold, right? And that's why there's a lot of conspiracies around, uh, you know, is the gold Big really gold. there? Is it in Fort Knox? Is it not? Yeah, yeah I mean, you just at that point rely on institutional credibility. Um, for banks, I mean, I assume they have whatever, you know, liquidity or capital, et cetera. I mean, it's heavily regulated. You're but, relying on the government to do that. But also the liquidity for sure. But, you know, we, when you talk about like bank reserve requirements, right, we know um, they were, they've were they been reduced to zero in the past. Right. Um, they have a lender of last resort down there in uh, New York and Washington, the Federal Reserve, who can We could just use print one of our those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we don't have one, um, which is, you know, I, look, again, it's, it's obviously a really upsetting situation, but it's the free market sort yeah. of at, at its core. Um, what we want is more transparency uh, among these, you know, third-party, I'm going to say custodians, but exchanges are also custodians in that sense. Yeah, I think with this, we can achieve an amazing self-regulatory measure, right? So it doesn't have to be top-down regulation. I do eventually expect that proof reserve requirements will be written into law in certain jurisdictions, maybe even in the U.S. But this is something that can be done spontaneously in a bottom-up way, which would be incredibly positive for the industry. And I think it wards off later, more punishing regulation. That's always been my pitch. Do this now so that it's not worse when the government comes in after a crisis and like tries to regulate you harshly. There may be other things that we need to get from from regulation, but this is one that has direct safety impacts to the positive. Yeah, I mean, the the actual implications are very, very significant. And I think there's no excuse now not to do it. Now, will all the exchanges I heard from an auditor friend that there are 17 exchanges that hit them up and ask them about it. Will wow. they be able to, and I know quite a few have done these informal proofs of asset, which is, you know, a good first step. It's right. Certainly not sufficient. Um, that's we'll, like Binance and a couple others giving all their addresses to Nansen or whatever. Yeah. Nansen has some nice dashboards. Absolutely. That doesn't prove much, right? Obviously like the liability side is essential. Um, but it's a good start. So I do like that that's being normalized. And CZ did actually tweet. He was calling actually for a Merkleized proof of work standard. So I think he said that those words. Yeah. So CZ is very clearly committed to it. Are is Binance going to be able to do it? I think on a Twitter space, yeah. he said two weeks. I would say there's a zero percent chance they're able to do it in two weeks because they have so many assets on the platform and you have to do this for every asset. Right. Uh, you know, um, all, there's also not that many audit firms to do it. So. Purely an amount of effort, as you're saying, to actually get this done quickly. Yeah. So you start with what? I mean, you said Kraken in the past has done it. They did Bitcoin and ETH or something. So here's the fun history of proof reserves. Yeah. There's actually a very colorful history. So after Gox went down, Stefan Thomas, of all people, went around helping exchanges do proofs of reserve, um, which is a kind of a weird, crazy little piece of trivia. Um Kraken did it, I think, in 2014. OKCoin did it. Uh, some other, a smattering of other exchanges. They all stopped. <laughs> and then they didn't take the mantle up again until I think there was one exchange, CoinFloor, that did it. Um, smaller exchange. They did it for five years straight. Wow. Which was really great. CoinFloor, shout out. Yeah. And um, then in 2021, I believe, BitMEX released one and some code. So that was a great step forward because that's reusable tools. Kraken then redid it. So mm -hmm. they kind of sort of came back to proof reserves, which is awesome. Very glad they've been kind of leading the charge on this. And, um, you know, what's funny is OKCoin, when they did it back in the day, there are actually accusations that they cheated the proof reserve. Way back then? Yep. And um, there's a, a now deleted Reddit post um, <laughs> accusing OKCoin of cheating their POR. And who was the CTO of OKCoin in 2014? Oh, was it CZ? And none other than CZ. Yeah. And none other than CZ. Interesting. So he has, a lot, he knows. He's, got a, he's got a history with POR, so. He, he knows proof reserves. Let's go. Um, so I'm expecting big things. 
Can Binance deliver? I mean, they are the most important institution to do this because they are not regulated. And they're the biggest. They're offshore and they're the biggest. They, more than anyone, need to do it. It's especially the offshore guys right. that need to do it, right? right? It's essential they do it. And um, I'm not holding my breath, though, because I think it's going to be really, really hard. At least start with Bitcoin and ETH. Those are, I guess, I agree. most, according to their addresses, they're, they're most, I think their biggest holdings are BUSD and, and such, which... Um, you know, that should be relatively trivial as well. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, stablecoins are one space where there's already, I don't know if I would call it a proof reserve necessarily, because the asset is actually treasuries. Right. And then the liabilities are the, the tokens. tokens on chain. Right. But there's a colorful history now already. Um, I think Trust Token has been doing these attestations um, with Armanino, I believe. Um, Armanino is the auditing firm that's been doing most of these, right? Have they built a special practice on proof of reserve type? They have, yeah. And I, they got a lot of flack recently. They're, it's actually kind of threw them under the bus a little bit because uh, they're like, yeah, they're overwhelmed. They, you know, they, there was some kind of like they they were on a, a like a, a FTX website or something. Yeah, so don't Ar work for FTX. Armanino audited FTX US from 2019 to 2021. They didn't audit FTX International. Now, was FTX US fully clean? Like, they might have had issues too, frankly. It's hard to know now, you know, we with don't the ties, know. but right. But I think Armenino is being unfairly maligned here. Right. And they're also the firm that's the most shovel-ready from a proof of reserve perspective. So I am dismayed at seeing the sort of, like, Armenino hate. Well, they're the ones that have done this work already. And um, this, again, they weren't doing proof of reserves for FTX US, right? There's right. just other auditing work yeah. that may, they may have done some for. Yeah. Um I think it's a I think it's a really big step. I think when I look at the regulations that have been proposed, whether it's in Lummis Gillibrand or this DCCPA or even stablecoin related stuff, you know, there's plenty in these things that would be good for the industry in general. Yeah. There's also plenty of stuff we the industry wants changed. Um, none of them that I'm aware of would actually have really made a dent on what happened at FTX. Yeah, the DCCPA didn't say much about like segregating uh, client balances from operating capital right. or maintaining seniority for depositors in a liquidation situation, right? Certainly didn't say anything about per reserve. It was more about esoteric derivatives market structure stuff. <laughs> yeah. Which I this is why I never liked it. It's like yeah. it seemed very self-serving. It's like, okay, you're spending all this political capital to get weird, hyper-specific stuff in place to entrench your regulatory moat. What about all this other stuff that the industry Safety, should have? Safety, consumer protection measures. Yeah. Um, I agree. I mean, that'll change now. I'm actually quite excited for uh, legislative developments <laughs> in 2023. I mean, uh, assuming Republicans take back the House, like I know there's right. a number of pieces of legislation they've already written. Yep. Uh, and some of them do pertain to this, to consumer protection. I think this is just a clear no-brainer. I mean, this it, it wouldn't have stopped, like you said. It wouldn't have stopped Fraud is FTX. fraud. You, you, right. No amount of But it could have alerted the users to this significantly sooner. It would have been a canary in the coal mine. Yeah. So, but yeah, if someone is intent on committing fraud, they're going to commit fraud. Yeah, what do you take to this? You know, there's been a lot of people, you know, a lot of Bitcoin maximalists, a lot of just general crypto critics um, who've said, you know, see, like, this is the problem with crypto. In one way or another, if it's the Bitcoin maximalist, they say, oh, well, if they had, I don't know, I guess if they had been Bitcoin only, Sam couldn't have stolen their money. I'm not really sure. Um, but like right. that somehow this is a uniquely crypto story. Do you see it that way? No, Bitcoiners can't. I know they try to distinguish themselves from the crypto industry. There were a lot of Bitcoiners and Bitcoin firms that used FTX. So um, Bitcoin was one of the assets that was misappropriated mis or whatever, yeah, as you know, poorly allegedly. labeled internal account, right? Poor, poorly labeled internal <laughs> account, hidden. Um, I understand the desire of Bitcoiners to like indict the crypto industry with this FTX thing, but they're look, they're part of the crypto industry, right? I mean, most firms that Bitcoiners use to get access to Bitcoin. Those are crypto firms. They do all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. You can't be a full purist. Um, I mean, the only way to truly be a purist is to buy your bitcoins on uh, local bitcoins. Yeah. And Bisque. then you know bury them in your backyard and then never <laughs> transact or do anything. 
So, but that's just not very interesting. Yeah. But I, I agree with your point here on the on the industry and the sort of on ramps and off ramps and infrastructure, obviously all being intertwined in terms of you know by coin. It's not certainly and Bitcoin is suffering from this thing too. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's not and immune in any way. I mean, you see the block clock behind you; it, it's got a pretty low number on it for what we're yeah, used to that, seeing. I don't like the looks of that. I'm, <laughs> I'm amazed you got it up here. I know. <laughs> yeah, we were actually having some uh, technical difficulties with the Wi-Fi getting it online. I didn't it was want to a start. Sign, yeah, yeah, I didn't want to start the podcast until it had something on it the I, block clock just didn't it was sympathetic it didn't want to display the price it did not want to i know our friends at CoinKite. uh by the way awesome block clock i don't know just it's this is the moscow time that jack dorsey had behind yeah. him during his congressional testimony yeah. um so but the other point is just that like this is just straight up fraud right sec cftc regulation it didn't stop bernie madoff it doesn't yeah. it didn't stop mf global it didn't stop archegos it didn't stop ltcm right actual fraud and misappropriation I mean, wasn't Bernie Madoff like the, the head of FINRA? He was, yeah, the predecessor <laughs> to FINRA, yeah. So, you know, Arthur Anderson couldn't stop Enron, right? Right. So, so. like, that, I, I don't, in that way, I don't view this as a uniquely crypto story at all. I think this is, uh, a, you know, an unregulated, opaque um, organization run by, it turns out, basically uh, children. Um, yeah. Who, um, with no board, <laughs> yeah. no governing board of their company, um, by themselves in a in a penthouse basically and they appear to have misappropriated funds and it, proof of reserves or any other regulation or transparency measure is not going to prevent that from happening but this is one proof of reserves where we could alert and correct and to your point um if ever if all the good actors in the space are doing it um then you start looking around saying well wait a sec who is not doing it you say ftx why aren't you doing it oh i don't know it's too technically hard how can you say that when everyone else is doing it right and so then that's a giant red flag, and you yeah. start to see people not use that exchange. Like So I think this could meaningfully move the ball forward when it comes to safety in the industry. I think it would be one of the most important developments ever from a self-regulatory perspective. Um, and so, I mean, this is why I called upon Coinbase to do it. And I know they don't appear to have any imminent plans. Um, they, When I asked them, they said, well... You know, we're a public company and we're audited. And so just look at our quarterly filings. It's like, that's fine, but that's not very crypto native. You know, like, why don't we take advantage of the innate transparency of blockchain? Look, we, all, we get attacked for blockchains being transparent. This is one of the times when it's actually useful, the fact that it's so transparent. Take advantage of that, guys. Set the tone for the rest of the industry. You improve everybody's prospects if you take a leadership stance, do proof of reserve, uh, and and you know make it something that is totally normalized throughout the industry. So I, I hope they come around on that too. Quick break for our listeners. Our poll last week was, what portion of funds do you think FTX depositors will eventually get back from the exchange? 49% said none of it. Uh, 41% said less than 50% and the rest was negligible. This week, our poll is quite simple. Will Sam Bankman-Fried testify before Congress? Yes or no? That poll is pinned to our profile on Twitter at GLXY Research. Go there, vote, make your voice heard. Now back to the show. Let's welcome Christine Kim, uh, the queen of the merge, uh, my colleague here at Galaxy Research, into the conversation here with Nick. Um, welcome, Christine. Thanks. Hi, Alex. Wow, the merge feels like it was years ago. It really does. Yeah. Um, I mean, those were simpler times. Actually, we did a podcast two weeks ago, you and I, and we were like, man, pretty slow news week. There was this thing about Alameda's balance sheet. Not so <laughs> sure, like, you know, what it is. Like, I guess we'll follow up on that next week. Well, that next week was last week. And boy, did we follow up on it. Um, and did, the, did, did it become big news? Yes. Um, let's keep the FTX conversation going a little bit. Um, I saw uh, the House Financial Services Committee is seeking to, they're going to do a hearing in December about FTX, et cetera. But supposedly they're in negotiations with the Bahamian regulators and I guess Sam Bankman Freed to bring him to the U.S. Uh, to um, testify before Congress. What do we think the odds are that Sam Bankman Freed lands on U.S. soil to test and goes to the Capitol? Yeah, I mean, I think he'll end up on U.S. soil, but it'll be under different circumstances. <laughs> what do you think, Christine? Any chance of it? I have no idea. <laughs> I yeah. mean, the U.S. government has a lot of sway, so I wouldn't put it past them to force this to happen. And so I don't I don't 
He can only hide for so long, right? I I, I don't know. Um, probably. I mean, the the reach of the the U.S. government is is long and far. Um, I I would personally be very surprised if he testifies before Congress. Um, but there will be hearings, almost certainly, about this issue um, before Congress. Um, I think you know, Binance was also on the list well, of yeah, people that they wanted. I don't know if they were on the list of people they wanted to testify, although maybe they are. They were in the press release of like the hearing will cover like FTX, Alameda, like Binance, et cetera, or something is what it said, which I, I thought that was doing Binance a bit dirty by including them on that, that press release, by the way. Yeah, there was this Financial Times article um, that was circulating over Twitter um, where the article had said that a lot of the FT, like part of like FTX's downfall was because of CZ's tweets and everyone on Twitter was just like ripping on it really hard saying that this was inaccurate reporting. Um, so lots of lots of controversy, I think. Yeah, it's like a deliberate attempt to reframe this away from FTX's and Alameda's malfeasance to like, oh, it's actually CZ's fault. It's like CZ just exposed them. Right. He All he did was make four tweets. Right. I mean, and thank goodness he did. Uh, I mean, it could have been worse. Well, it would have gone on longer, perhaps. I mean, I, I think you can't deny that the um, CZ's transparency about uh, his actions with the FTT token definitely did uh, dramatically impact sentiment and fears about FTX's solvency. But we, we know now they weren't solvent. so They were warranted fears. <laughs> right, warranted fears. He did the right thing. Yeah. He did the right thing. Okay, so also uh, along these same uh, sort of uh, uh, the same discussion, um, the there were funds last week. So after the after our podcast aired on Friday, um, a large amount of funds appeared to have been stolen from FTX, um, and we didn't know. I think we still don't know who has done this. Um, one exchange, Kraken tweeted, uh, or their head of security or something tweeted that. They actually think they know who it is. I'm sure they're in contact with, you know, whichever law enforcement or whomever they need to be about that. But um, we don't know what happened here. There's lots of speculation that it could be an insider attack. It's really hard to know. You think about it like all these FTX employees are gone. Maybe their security team is gone. Right. Right. This is a, a solid target in that way. If, um, so I don't want to speculate about who it could be. But we will say that apparently by total ETH held now, this uh, hacker who immediately converted everything they stole into native ETH. Um, apparently, is the 35th their account on ETH on Ethereum is the 35th wealthiest Ethereum holder in the world. Were they one of the largest holders before the hack? No. Okay. No, no. Nuva Rich. Yeah, <laughs> Nuva Rich. Yeah. Um, uh, but Christine, you were saying about that list. Um, yeah, the top account on that list is the Ethereum deposit contract. So basically all staked ETH. The reason why like the top holder is the top holder is because everyone just uses that contract to stake ETH on the beacon chain. And there are several other accounts on that list in the top 10. I'm pretty sure that the majority of the top 10 are um, accounts held by exchanges like publicly labeled accounts or smart contract accounts. But this is one of the few that's an externally owned account basically like operated by a user, not by a smart contract or a publicly identified entity. Um, and so this kind of makes me think a little bit to the DAO hack of 2016 about one of the rationales of doing an irregular mm -hmm. state change was that we didn't want a large ETH holder to be, you know, this, to, to be, be a like hacker. a criminal. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, look, look where we are today. And you know, it still happened. Like, obviously, there's not going to be an irregular state change on Ethereum, but like that fear has manifested. One is of the largest obvious? ETH holders. Is that obvious? A regular state change, also known as taking funds from an account in a hard fork? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny that is it certain to not happen, though? I mean, I, I think it, I admit if it's much less likely to occur. I mean, it didn't happen with the parody bug, right? It didn't happen plenty of other times it could have happened, but like, are we certain that we won't have an irregular state change on ETH? That's that's a dangerous question. I mean, I think Ethereum is is decentralized. You're certain. I I think I'm certain. Yeah. Yeah. I, I You're think certain. The odds of that are almost right. zero. Yeah. It's interesting to see this these irregular state changes happening on other chains that are impacted by FTX, like 
Uh, I think Serum, for instance, was forking out. That's right. Serum's a, what, a Dex on Solana that um, FTX, did they even build it? Like, yeah, they basically did, and they were marking it in the billions as far as an asset on their balance Right, they held sheet. SRM token. But it, the float was incredibly low. <laughs> was it like 50 I mean, million? This whole thing vindicates um, the kind of like su subset of people that were like, forget about market cap, guys. Market cap is a garbage metric. Look at free float. Look at liquidity. Like, look, look at real liquidity measures, right. you know? So I think we can put the market cap infatuation behind us because that was part of the scheme, you know? It's true. Re representing themselves as extra solvent based on these totally liquid assets. But yeah, I think Serum is now. Or two days ago, did some kind of fork. Yeah, I don't remember the exact details. Um, and I, I think the issue is something about like the upgrade admin keys to this DeFi application were held at FTX. And yeah, so they so were the, forking in order to remove those right. keys, um, which to be clear, sounds like a very prudent. If that's if I'm describing the issue correctly, then that sounds quite prudent to do. Um, but also, I wonder if they were going to remove uh, FTX's they, ownership. Like, yeah, by doing that, I think they might have forked out uh, right, FTX balances. <laughs> so yeah. just, did they just eliminate a big piece of what creditors or perhaps were recoverable sum? Very yeah. bizarre. Um, speaking of recoverable sums, um, Sam Bankman Fried donated a lot of money uh, around Washington. Um, I don't know how bankruptcy rules work here, but um, if some of that was within a clawback period. Is that even possible to be clawed, clawed back? I think we're all gonna become experts at like bankruptcy. Bankruptcy law. clawback? Yeah. yeah. Um, I well, mean, I think there's also fears or concerns that people that withdrew funds from the exchange at right at the death will also themselves maybe have that clawed back. The political donations. Well, we don't know. I think they should give them back. The political donations, even if it's not, they're not legally mandated, because it's clear now that was theft from from the users. Well, the I, hey, I, 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 we don't know if it was theft, but we do know that it was part of the minus eight billion hidden, in, poorly labeled internal <laughs> fiat account. Those are illegitimate, <laughs> Ill, illegitimate donations. Like, I'm if never going to stop laughing about that. If account. like a mobster, you know, to normalize themselves, uses their racketeering money to give it to like local, you know, politicians, those politicians should not accept the money. It's blood money, right? This is the same. I think these are this is the proceeds from like some basically a fraud, as far as I can tell. So I don't know how anybody that received those donations can hang on to them. Let's. Uh, move on. Christine, you've been following, uh, you're well known for following the Ethereum development community. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about, this is sort of tangential. I think we're going to we'll semi-wrap up our FTX conversation here. Uh, but what is going on now? They've been meeting again. Remember, the developers took a bit of a vacation following the merge, which was way back in September. Um, what's now on the agenda uh, for the developers? The agenda is definitely focused primarily on Shanghai, the next upgrade. I mean, that's always going to be the focus. It's just what's the next thing to change about the protocol? What's the next um, upgrade, right? Yeah. We were joking, like, is, is there a time when, like, Vitalik comes out and, like, waves a flag and yeah. is like, we're all done, <laughs> we're everybody all done, pack everyone. it up, like, protocol's ossified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> we did it. Congratulations, guys. Can you imagine? And I think the consensus in what you said, too, is no, absolutely not. They'll never stop upgrading. Um but anyway, the next upgrade. So I what is tell. in the next upgrade now? What's it look like? So I think developers had, had really come together about what the core of Shanghai should look like during their first meeting back. Um, and it was, you know, at a minimum staked ETH withdrawals and then like a couple of other minor optimizations and improvements to the network. Um, but lately, so this week in particular, there's been quite a lot of of concern, I think, on, on Twitter about when exactly staked ETH withdrawals would be enabled in Shanghai, even though it has been in, has been confirmed that it's going to go into the next upgrade, um, mainly because the rest of Shanghai hasn't been decided. So even though we know staked ETH is going to go into Shanghai, let's just say developers agree that three or four other major code changes should be included into that upgrade, then the timeline for Shanghai gets mm. delayed to next fall or even potentially like 2024 in oh like the gosh. worst case. Mm. And so the, the, the concern is that like, you know, you, you made a decision now, but almost like the more important decision is like, what else is going into Shanghai? And can we please figure that out soon so that people have some certainty around like, is it going to be next summer? Is it going to be, you know, as early as like 
next February if they only do staked ETH withdrawals and nothing else into that upgrade. Um, and so I think that's become quite contentious. I think the three other major changes that are being discussed is, of course, EIP 4844, the scalability upgrade for Ethereum. Um, that is going to require lots of research and development. The second one is EOF implementation. It's basically an upgrade, a new version of the Ethereum virtual machine um, that would, that would, yeah, definitely, you know, the full implementation of EOF does, there's, there's, it would take a lot of effort. Um, and then the third one um, is BLS signatures, not as heavy of a lift, but it just introduces like a new, more modern cryptographic scheme into Ethereum and allows people to do um, enable a lot more use cases um, because Ethereum has a, has a pretty outdated like um, smart contract language, which limits, you know, the functionality of what you can do. Um, so if you just start to include like new cryptographic signature schemes like the BLS one, um, a lot more you can you can Got enable. Um, so there's a few others too, but um, that has been really like the focus of the discussion. Last last week's meeting was pretty contentious. Lots of debate and discussion going into. You know, what else do we include into Shanghai? Goodness. Um, and tomorrow there's going to be a, a meeting again to discuss, you know, next steps. So it's really around timing for Shanghai, which is mostly impacted by what other things are going to go in there, right? Yeah. And that, but that is, I mean, they push staked ETH withdrawals until 2024. Well, 2024, mainly for EIP 4844. Like the estimation of some people is that EIP 4844 is going to take until 2024. And if they include it in Shanghai. Correct. Now then Shanghai is there far delayed. But I mean, that will cause an uproar, I think. And by the way, um, perhaps rightly so, because that's a lot longer than I think a lot of, you know, staked ETH depositors, beacon chain depositors, let alone thought that they would have to have to wait. I saw a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of criticism about that on twitter so what are the odds that they blow it out and they do uh shanghai is just stake eth withdrawals and they move everything else to a next upgrade split it into two so the the first meeting back where they had agreed staked eth withdrawals was going into shanghai there was there was a lot of consensus around let's not do two upgrades let's just keep it into one because the amount of testing energy and like governance process to even do a small upgrade is the exact same as a big upgrade. Totally. So why not just shove everything into a big one? So that was the consensus. But I think like that consensus has started to become far more unraveled through subsequent meetings because of this understanding that Shanghai might become considerably delayed because of how big they want to make it. Yeah. I mean, that would play right into a lot of criticism about uh, that Ethereum uh, developers receive um, from other networks, from Bitcoiners, about the staked ETH being locked, right? And, um, but also just, gosh, that's a long, that could be a long time. I mean, those are important stuff they want, whether it's dank sharding stuff or, or whatever else, the, the sort of core ETH 2.0 ideas that on scalability that we're waiting for on Ethereum. But like, I mean, you know, it, if you have to do two governance processes, two testing processes, two, you know, exchange and, and stakeholder upgrade processes, well, yeah, that's hard if it's in you know six month period. But if they're going to delay the thing a year and a half, what they still have to do once it's like what's so they're going to do nothing. Or it would be easy for them to do that process once for this and then take another eight months, eight or nine. Like it's kind of seems kind of ridiculous to me actually. Um, that that I doubt that consensus can hold. But I'm not the I don't follow the developer community closely on Ethereum at all. So I defer to you on this. Yeah, you would think that it's a little simpler, but I think it's it's hard when, um, you know, for, for the longest time it was, let's try and keep the upgrades as like bare bones as possible. But it's like, what is the straw that's going to break the camel's back? You always think that one additional code change won't actually de- delay the process that much. Right. And these are upgrades that have been in the pipeline for several years. Um, so BLS signatures. So they don't want to be delayed either, to be exactly. honest. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I, I really do think that it's about co- priorities. Like how much does the Ethereum community need scalability now, need um, greater like uh, censorship resistance, privacy guarantees now, um, and and how do those compete with the staked ETH withdrawal priority, which um, really is, is for the benefit of people who had deposited um, way back when, you know, in, in 2020 and just like 
being true to that promise, um, which surprisingly, I'm not sure if this is 100% true, but I saw on Twitter that um, on the Ethereum Foundation re- website, like ethereum.org, it used to say that staked ETH withdrawals would be enabled six to 12 months after the merge. And they took that down from the Ooh. website, which I think is why there's so much controversy on Twitter this week um, because of that change on the oh, website. Oh, specifically website change. Um, let's talk briefly about DeFi. Um, you know, there's been a lot of conversation that, you know, uh, FTX wasn't DeFi, right? And, you know, who, who did Alameda pay off first, right? They paid Compound, they paid Gearbox, they paid Abracadabra. We saw the same thing with Celsius. They paid down their DeFi debts first. I think the automated, transparent, uh, rigid nature of smart contract enabled decentralized finance clearly puts it at the top of the creditor stack basically mm-hmm. um which i think is a very is an interesting positive right you can't call up the smart contract and say hey bro give me another day bro i just no need another week, bro yeah. please dog you know don't please bro or whatever you know that meme um so that i think that's you know in a lot of ways is really shined through these credit crunches what are you seeing uh in the DeFi world over the last week or so Lots more on-chain activity, um, partially, of course, because people are scared and they want to pull their assets off of exchanges, off be of it centralized everything. or decentralized. Yeah. Um, Cold storage, baby. Ledger said that their their sales were at an all-time high, their hardware wallet sales. Yeah, yeah. Lots of more focus and interest in, in self-custodying now more than ever. Um, but one of the headlines that got my attention was that Uniswap is now the second largest um, has like the second largest trade volume for trading ETH, even ahead of Coinbase. Wow, um, behind Binance, I assume. No, not not. I'm Binance. saying Binance has number oh, one. Oh yes, I Binance assume. has number one. Uniswap number two. Wow. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was like pretty big. Um, and then also DYDX seeing like a 60% jump in yep. their trading volumes. Um, and this, of course, is all playing so nicely into Ethereum's tokenomics, which after the merge is far more sensitive to on-chain activity than it was before. Um, so for the first time we're seeing, I think it was um, like the beginning of this crisis. So like about two weeks ago, we saw for the first time like the contraction of total ETH supply around 6,000 ETH. We're basically since the merge, like 6,000 ETH smaller yep. in terms of total supply. Um which so I that's, know. that's the IP 1559, right? Which, um, in addition with the merge, because issuance oh, has gone down, and with the merge's overall reduction in issuance, um, that's transactional activity resulting in higher base fees, which get burned. Yes, yeah. and now that ETH isn't being issued, uh, now is being issued at a fraction of what it was before the merge. Right. Um, we're really starting to see Ethereum's tokenomic design um, work and 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 play out, um, which has been really encouraging to see. I feel like that's been one of the positives, um, testing out the resiliency of DeFi protocols and also Ethereum's tokenomics after the merge, and both have been incredibly strong through this. Let's wrap it up here. Uh, Thank you, Christine. What do you think, both of you, uh, what's on the near-term horizon? And and Nick, I mean, well, hold on, actually. You're you're in here in New York, by the way, which is great. I thought you were a Miami guy. What what are you doing up here? <laughs> I actually <laughs> came to New York for a concert. Magdalena nice. Bay. Magdalena Excellent Bay band. Very much recommend them. Awesome. And, and your amazing what? serendipity that I'm here. Yeah. You're heading back to Miami soon or are you going elsewhere? I'll be in Texas for the blockchain summit. Oh, the Texas blockchain uh, summit. Last one of the year. Yeah. Long uh, long year of conferences. Yeah. But uh, that's a great one actually. So really looking forward to conversations with uh, policymakers there. Oh wow. Yeah. And that's the one that um was it Ted Cruz and people he were spoke at last, last year? year? I think he'll be here yep. there again. Yeah. So is it a very Bitcoin mining focused conference or is it sort of everything? Yeah, mining features of certainly very heavily. Um it's gonna be an atmosphere of doom and gloom. The miners are very distressed yep. right now. I mean, uh, that was kind of the big story of maybe three weeks ago was the you know, miners suffering. Um that overshadowed now by other events, but the mining sector is still very much screwed. Yep. Tough to hear. I mean, I think they're going to they're gonna come out of it some way. Hash rate's still at an all-time high. Yeah, so basically I think the equilibrium will be found when hash rate, some, yeah, hash rate falls, yeah. profitability increases. So you you will get that negative feedback loop to Im- arrest the insolvencies, but I think there will have to be more minor failures first. Uh, most miners are just not operating profitably right now electricity prices hash rate increasing and bitcoin price falling is a triple whammy what a show today our friend bimnet abibi from galaxy digital trading thank you christine kim from galaxy research 
and my friend Nick Carter from Castle Island Ventures and Coinmetrics. Great to see you. Thank you for joining us on Galaxy Brains. My pleasure as always. That's all we've got for Galaxy Brains this week. Thank you all for listening. Have a great weekend and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.